You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. All right, if you have a Bible, please turn your Bibles to, and if you don't, there's some in the back for you to, to keep, take home. Um, there's small, little compact ones, but the only deal is if you take it home, you have to read it, okay? So still take it home and like throw it on your you know, nightstand, and when your mom comes over, you're like, Mom, like things are good. I have a Bible. Um, don't do that. Read it. All right, so... 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we started this book about three weeks ago, or actually three weeks ago, and uh, we're going to look at verses uh, 7 through, or 10 through 17 this, this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. Let me read and then pray. Paul writing to the church in Corinth, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is, is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Still another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say you were baptized into my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. Classic. (laughs) So good. For Christ, he says, for Christ, Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross be emptied of its power. Let's pray. Lord, this is a a very difficult thing to stand in front of a group of people and preach and try and have a a captivating teaching. I don't think that your word is boring, but then... um, to preach in such a way that people don't, don't leave thinking what a sermon, but what a savior. That's, that's what, what I really hope for this morning and desire to see happen. Um, I know there's this proclivity in every person's heart to want people to think that you're doing a good job, but really today, God, I, I want that, and I confess that, but I really want more than anything that the gospel's preached. And so I pray that Christ, your gospel will be preached today. Pray that you would anoint me and and use me, God, so that the words that I say and the things that come out of my mouth this morning would not just be pleasing to you, but you would use them to change hearts. That Holy Spirit, you you would move throughout this room, that you would change minds and hearts and then lives, God. We thank you for this, and we ask, God, I ask that you would bring this church to unity, that we would be united under Christ in the name of God of Jesus. May we be united. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 This morning, I want to start with some questions. There's a, just a couple of questions to set the groundwork for what we'll be talking about. The first question is this. Why are there so many churches and denominations? 
Why are there so many churches and denominations? This is a, a, a question that I get from a lot of people that just start following Jesus or they just start coming to church. And one of the first questions everyone asks is, why are there so many churches? Why are there so many different denominations? Are you a denomination? Are you First Baptist, Second Baptist? Are you this or that? And we're like, no, we're non-denominational, which is somewhat of a denomination in itself, but whatever. <laughs> we're non that's what I always put when I do someone's wedding denomination, I just write non. Um, why are there so many churches? Next question, why are there just as many cliques and groups in the church than there is in the common workplace or school? Or maybe, if we're honest, probably more cliques in the church. Why is there like factions and cliques in the church and why does it feel so hard to get on the inside of something or, or what you appear to be, what, what appears to be on the inside of something. Why, do you, why is it so hard to break into a church? Another question is, why do we have heroes? Why do we have our favorite Avenger or X-Men or football player or favorite member of One Direction? Why do we have like our favorite whatever? Um, Whatever it is, and, and anything like we have our favorite, you know, if it's, a, if it's a super band or super group, we have our favorite player, we have our favorite te- person who's, why do we have our favorite preacher? Why do we have our favorite pastor? Why do we do that? Why do we always do that? The last question is, how does the gospel rescue us from all this? How does the gospel res- rescue us from denom- denominationalism, from cliques, from hero worship, and bring us into true unity and community. How does the gospel do this? This is what Paul is writing about. This is what Paul is writing to correct. And so Paul says, to the church of God in Corinth. Now remember, Corinth is a very messed up church in a progressive and pluralistic city in the ancient Roman Empire. Though it is an ancient book, it reads very modern. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, I I appeal to you in the name of in the name. Now, if you have a Bible um, handy, you might want to highlight or underline in the name of. This is very important. Paul is pleading, appealing to them. He's not, he's not demanding here. He's not like a dad that makes his kids play nice and long. He's not like a dad like, you will love each other. Like, he's not doing that. I don't know if your parents ever did that or if your parent, you, like, you will love your sister. Go give her a hug right now. And tell her you're sorry. And say you love her. Like, oh, let me, uh, you know, whatever. And you're like, he's halfway hug. Like, like, this is not Paul going, you better get along or else I'm going to come and slap somebody. Like, you, you better love each other. Like, he's not making them love each other. What he's trying to do, he's saying, he's begging them. He's pleading. He wants them to realize that the way that they're living is that he actually out of step with the gospel that has saved them. There is a gospel that has saved them, that has purified them, that has made them holy, that has actually made them a church, and they're living out of step with the very thing that they're following. They're living out of step with the name, the reputation. The the name of Jesus means the reputation of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, the character of our Lord Jesus. I appeal to you according to the character and the authority and the reputation of Jesus, that there be no divisions among you. Now, why are there so many divisions and cliques and hero worship in the church? And there is. There's hero worship in the church today. If you have been at church longer than like five years, you start to find 
pastors on the internet and you start to follow certain people on Twitter and you start to like certain things. And then you start to go, well, I like this sort of style of church. I like this sort of style of church. I like this sort of style of preaching. And this sort of thing becomes the best. Well, this church is way better than that church. Well, this church, why do you go to this church? Well, that church is because this church is way better. This church preaches the gospel, which we know what you're saying, right? The others don't. That's what you're saying. Well, this, this church preaches the Bible. What you're saying is the other ones don't. Like somehow they're a church that has a Bible and prays, but they don't like read or teach the Bible. That's what you're saying. Why, do, why are there so many divisions and why are there so many cliques and hero worship in the church? And this is why. Because somewhere along the line, someone or a group of someones have lived out of step with the name. Someone or a group of someones have lived out of step with the name and all that name represents. The vision for unity starts with the name. The name of Jesus. And the name of Jesus, what I want to talk about this morning, the name of Jesus evokes a desire and an allegiance. The name of Jesus evokes a desire and an allegiance. First, a desire. Everyone turn their Bibles to John chapter 17. It's just to the left, if you're in 1 Corinthians, just to the left, a couple of books. John chapter 17. In verse 20. John 17, 20. Now when someone's facing their death, their final words as they look back on their life and reflect, their final words before their death hold weight. How much more a final prayer? And how much more Jesus' prayer? And how much more Jesus' dying prayer? That's what this is. This is Jesus' dying prayer. And this prayer is heavy. In John 17, Jesus starts by praying for himself. He prays that, God, Father, I pray you glorify me as I glorify you. That we would be one and people would see that. Then he prays for his the, the, the first disciples, the, the, the ones that were following at that point, he prays for them. And then, trip out on this. I remember the very first time I read this, I actually wrote, that's me. In the, like, me. Like, like a, I don't know how you can write that. But I did that in my Bible. Like, Jesus prays for us right now. Check this out. Verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. Speaking of the 12 that he just prayed for, or the disciples that he just prayed for. I don't, I don't just pray for them. I pray for those who will believe in me through their message. Who's that? It's us. Jesus is praying for us. He's praying for you. He's praying for this church. He's praying for the church in San Francisco. He's praying for us. And, 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 and what's cool about this, he has the confidence that his message will endure. He has the confidence knowing that, that he'll build his church and the gates of hell, hell will not prevail against it. So he has that sort of confidence in the church that he's building. And he's like, the gates of hell won't prevail against this thing. I pray for everyone who comes to believe in me through their message. This is the prayer. Now he could have prayed, he could have prayed anything. He could have prayed in praying for us. He could have prayed many possible ways. He could have prayed for purity. I pray for their purity, God. I pray for their strength. I pray for their endurance. I pray for their witness. I pray for their ministry. I pray that you would send them out, God, and then you would fill them up and you would, he could pray for all of that. He could pray for anything right here. What is he gonna pray for? As he prays for the enduring church, what, how is Jesus gonna pray for the enduring church? Look at this. I pray 
that all of them may be one. I pray that the church, as it endures through the centuries, would be unified. What is probably one of the things that the church is known for not being? Unified. I pray that they would be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be one in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. I think sometimes we forget that the Bible is true. I think we forget that Jesus actually did pray this. I think we read this and we're just going, oh, okay. But if you stop and just look and, and wait and just look at the words, he's saying, I pray that they would be one so that people would believe, that the world would believe. How is the world going to believe that Jesus is who he is? How, how, is, the, how is the church to testify of the identity of Jesus? And you know what Jesus said? The biggest hermeneutic for the identity of Christ is love and unity. It's unity in the church. This is how the world's going to know. This is how the world's going to know the identity of Christ. Now, I know that, I know that we have a way to go to, to look at this very individually. We have a, a way to maybe look at it like, okay, God wants unity in our church, so Reality San Francisco, be unified. Okay, certainly that does have application here, and I think we should think through that. But on a greater level, it's, it's way more global than that. But let me just take it from being too wide and too narrow, Okay. Let me just try to, I'm not a photographer, but never mind. I won't even use an illustration because I don't even know what I'm talking about. Okay. <laughs> I don't want to get too wide, too meta. go, the world, everyone, the world. Everybody's like, okay, the world, whatever. But then like if I go to this church, it's a little too narrow. Let's, let's be unified here. Let's just think about San Francisco. How will the city of San Francisco know the identity of Christ? Jesus says, I pray that the church in San Francisco would be one. And as the church in San Francisco is one, it would testify of the identity, the reputation, the character of Christ. May the followers of Jesus in San Francisco be one. Now here's the question. Are you doing anything to damage that? Are you personally doing anything to damage the oneness of Jesus in the church in San Francisco? Are you damaging that through elitism? Are you calling out churches as better than other churches? Have you come here recently because you, this church you think is better? We're not better. We're probably way more screwed up. You're like, that's why I think you're better. <laughs> you need counseling. So, <laughs> if, you, if, you've, if you've come into this church, look, this church is better. They're, and I want to narrow it down here because this is the, the unity that, that Paul talks about. Under the gospel of Jesus Christ, those that adhere to the gospel, the, 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 the truth of who Christ is, his identity, his atoning work on the cross as the only way to salvation and life and unity with God, as we preach that gospel, there is no one better. It might be different, but not better. Are you talking bad about another church? You're playing into the division. The very thing that Jesus prayed that we would be known for, you're working against. 
Then in verse, then he goes on, Jesus prays and he says, I have given them the glory that you have given me, verse 22, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity. That would make a good song. Um, Then the world will know that you sent me. Then the world will know. When they come to complete unity, the world will know that you sent me and you have loved the world even as you have loved me. Or some translations say that you have loved the world more than you have loved me. The unity of the church, the unity of the people that follow Jesus is not only to testify of Christ's uniqueness, his beauty, his worth, and who he is, but it's to testify of that the Father loves the world, that God loves the world. So when Paul is talking about, guys, I, 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 I plead with you in the name of Jesus, When he's pleading, as he's pleading, he's pleading the desire of Christ. Christ's own desire for his church. His prayer for the church. His hope for the church. That through our unity, the world will know that Jesus was sent. That Christ's sentness, his reputation of redemption and forgiveness and lordship is connected to our unity, which is so strange. It's strange that Jesus connects who he is to our unity. But his oneness with the Father was the sole foundation of his own identity. And he makes our oneness with him and our oneness with one another our our identity as well. Now how will this unity take place? Will this unity take place by the churches all coming together and talking through our differences and trying to get along? Those may help, but Jesus' vision for unity is our unity with him. He says, I in them When Christ is exalted above every person, every pastor, every method, every church name, when Christ is central, then we have unity. We don't try to tune ourselves to each other. We tune ourselves to Jesus. And so instead of all the churches getting together and saying, hey, let's all just like have unity in this one area, if the churches got together and just worshiped, by the way, that's something that I've been praying happens in the city. Maybe you can pray that same prayer. If all the different churches got together and worshiped Jesus and made him central, then all of a sudden unity would just happen in so many other areas that, that if, if it took hours in board meetings, it, it probably wouldn't accomplish that. This is Jesus' dying prayer and his hope for his church. So when Paul is appealing to the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, he is appealing to the very hope and prayer that Jesus had for us. But the name of Jesus not only evokes a desire of Christ, it also evokes an allegiance to Christ. An allegiance to his name, and this is why Paul said, in the name. Now the church in Corinth was divided. The word in Greek is, uh, the, the word for division in Greek is schismata. There was all kinds of schisms in the church. There were tears and splits. So the word divided is kind of a harsh word. It's, it's a little more subtle than divided. It's like a tear. There's tears in the church. There's splits in the church. Remember in Acts 18 that Paul was a tent maker. Remember we read that in Acts 18 last week. Paul was a tent maker. And, if, and as a tent maker, if there was a, schism, a schisma, a schismata in your tent, a tear, your tent would be in risk of being totally ruined. And so the solution as a tent maker would be to mend the tear. 
to perfectly unite the fabric back together. That's what he's calling the church to do. To be perfectly knit together. To be perfectly united. To mend what is torn. Now, Corinth wasn't divided. The church in Corinth wasn't divided over doctrinal divides. It wasn't that some people in the church were fighting because one side believed in six-day creation while the other side believed in theistic evolution. Like, that wasn't the, the, the divide. Well, we, I believe in six-day creation plus, you know, a seventh restful day. No, I believe in theistic evolution. And then they're like, oh, let's fight. And that wasn't the divide. It wasn't doctrinal. It wasn't free will predestination debate, which everyone wants to talk about. It wasn't that. It wasn't like, I believe in free will. Well, I believe in predestination. Well, how does that work? I don't really know. Like, it wasn't those sort of fights. These weren't doctrinal. They were relational, which are sometimes even more damaging. These were relational tears in the church. They had to do with status. The church in Corinth was a status-driven church. The actual, the city of Corinth was a status-obsessed culture. They were obsessed with status. A group of people who had some of the highest cultural status in the Greco-Roman times was a group called the Sophists. Now, a Sophist were one part philosopher, one part orator, one part professor, and one part movie star. These were men gifted in rhetoric and logic and philosophy. They can tell the be- they, they, they would go into towns and tell some of the best stories about the most meaningful content or about nothing at all. Because with sophist, content didn't matter as much as how they looked when they said what they said. So they would stand there and give these brilliant speeches. They would use rhetoric and they would use dramatic pauses and all this other stuff and hand motions. And they would do all these things. And through their language and through their eloquence, they would gain followers. These sophists would travel city to city gathering huge crowds of people. And delivering eloquent speeches on various topics. Sophists were the entertainment industry of the Greco-Roman world. Sophists were basically just a bunch of Daniel Day-Lewises walking around. (laughs) That's what they were. They would come in and they would deliver the best speeches. They would play the character. They would play the part. And sophists would get all these people to follow them. Sophists had disciples. They had followers. They had a fan base. One, there's one record of a man named... Diochristotum, who visited, the, the, uh, who visited Corinth in the first century, and he wrote about how around Poseidon's temple, these sophists gathered, and as they gathered, they shouted at one another using their eloquence of speech, and their disciples, who were around their own favorite sophist, their followers, their fan club, fought with one another. They were literally yelling at each other, and they were yelling, quoting their favorite sophist. My sophist says this, and they were yelling, we have spirit, yes we do, or whatever. You know, they were yelling back and forth, and there was just commotion. There was even one, one group of disciples that beat up another, another fan person and killed them, like beat them to death, because they loved their sophist the most, and his was the best, and he was awesome, and he whatever. Sophists were also very entrepreneurial where they would travel to a town and to the rich people in town they would go do you want me to train your child you want me to teach them in rhetoric and they would get large sums of money to to tutor and train they lived for what was called doxa which is greek for glory or glorification they lived they lived for glory 
They lived for the glorification from, that came from the crowds. This was the church in, this was the culture in Corinth. Excuse me. This was the culture in Corinth. Now, remember, at the very beginning of our study two weeks ago, we read uh, from a commentator named Gordon Fee. He said this. Although, speaking of the church in Corinth, although they were the Christian church in Corinth, an inordinate amount of Corinth was yet in them, emerging in a number of attitudes and behaviors that required radical surgery without killing the patient. There were things inside the church in Corinth that reflected Corinth so much that Paul needed to, re- to remove it through a radical surgery but without killing them. This is one of the ways the culture in, of Corinth was in the church. And so they started to say this, I follow Paul. Paul's the best. Paul rules. Paul's awesome. Paul wrote one-third of the New Testament. What has your apostle done for you? That sort of thing. Well, I follow Apollos. If you read in Acts, Apollos was an eloquent speaker. He would get up and give beautiful rhetoric about the scriptures. He was so compelling. When he taught, you were just wrapped up into his words and the way the words like dripped off. Like all this stuff. You guys know those sort of pastors I kind of personally hate them because they're so good, but whatever. <laughs> like their, their vocabulary is so awesome. And, and they, they, I, don't, I, I can't even talk right now. They're that good. That was Apollos. And there's the people like, no, no, no. I, we, I, I follow. I am a, from, I, I'm, I'm of Apollos. And there was either, there's either, there's some other ones. That I'm from Cephas. Peter, pretty much. Aramaic name for Peter. And then there was the, okay, hyper-spiritual alert. I'm of Jesus. <laughs> right? You know those people. Like, who do you like? Like, are you, are you like, where, where do you stand? Are you Calvinist? Are you not? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm of Jesus. Like, but what, do you, but what do you believe? You know, like those really hyper, they just don't want to, just, uh, this is what was going on in Corinth. The church in Corinth was starting to treat its leaders like sophists. They were treating them and they started getting fan bases and they had fan clubs and like there's a Paul fan club and a Paulus fan club and, and a Peter fan club and then there was like this hyper-spiritual fan club. Like, yeah, we, don't, we, we, follow, we just follow Jesus, that's it. And you have to remember, this wasn't a necessarily one church that met in a big building. There were different house churches spread across all of Corinth. So there might have even been one house church that was the Apollos house church and one that was a Peter and one that was a, a, a Paul and the one that was like the hyper-spiritual one. We don't know. That could be the case. And they were fighting each other over who was the best orator and who was the most gifted in rhetoric and who even baptized them. Like, yeah, um, I was baptized by, by Paul. I was baptized by Peter. I, I was baptized by Apollos. And this is why Paul said that I didn't even baptize you. He said, are you insane? Paul says, stop. I appeal to you, Stop. Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I didn't baptize any of you. Okay, maybe you. And you. And maybe you. I forget. Okay, stop asking me questions, all right? (laughs) One of my favorite parts of the whole Bible. Paul is trying to put things into gospel perspective. You were not baptized into my name. You were baptized under the name of Jesus, under the authority of Jesus. You were baptized into, to be identified with him, not me. 
And that name is what Paul appeals to and what that entire name represents. And what does that name, Jesus Christ, represent? That name represents self-giving, sacrificial love for the other, even at the cost of itself. Are you, church, in Corinth, giving yourself self-sacrificially to the other even when it costs you something? That's the name of Jesus. It's not, I'm Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of this, I'm of that. Here was a church that was tearing apart because people started saying, we have the better leader. We have the better pastor. Our leader is a better teacher. Our leader preaches the gospel, implying the others don't. Our leader is more spiritual than your leader. Our church is better than your church. When it comes to leaders and churches, here's a good, here's a good truth. Don't idolize leaders, but don't over-spiritualize leaders. Don't idolize or over-spiritualize. This is what we tend to do. We tend to either make too much of a leader, we idolize them. They become our little pseudo-God or our only way to God. They become our mediators between God and man, not Jesus Christ. Or we over-spiritualize a leader's gifts. Do you realize if someone's a gifted communicator, a gifted leader, a gifted organizer, a gifted, whatever they're gifted in, it's a, if it's a gift from God, it's a gift. You should not worship the gift. You should look to the giver of that gift, Jesus. Don't think that that person has a special connection to God that no one else possesses. Don't start reading all their stuff and think that, well, they must be right. Okay, so what about, but what about disagreements? We all have disagreements. They happen all the time. How do we agree with one another when we dis, how do we, how do we, as Paul says, how do we agree with one another when we disagree? There should be diversity and unity and community and unity. There should be diversity and community around unity. Meaning, not everyone should be like you. If you're at a church, this church or any church that you're a part of, if you go to church and everyone in the church church looks like you and acts like you and loves everything you love, run. Because you've either created a church for you, which is a cult, by the way, (laughs) or you've been brainwashed, and that's a cult too. If everyone in the church is like you, if you're looking for a community group of people just like you, you're looking for a cult. The, The church should not look like you. The cross takes natural enemies and unites them. We've tried to. We've tried. We've not done a great job at it, but we're still trying. We've, we've tried to do this in our church. Community groups aren't super specific. We don't have the young 30-something, you know, Asian group. <laughs> we don't have the older yuppie white group. Like, you just don't do that. It doesn't make any sense to do that. But, but, we, we, but we're going, but what if we just took off Asian? Can we just have a young 30s group? And other, No. Do you understand? It, it cuts across race and it cuts across age. And it cuts, cuts across social classes. Across, the cross cuts across it all. And so you have young and old, rich and poor, ethnically diverse people coming together that have nothing in common. You're looking around, you're like, does anyone here like this band 
that I like? And they're like, no. <laughs> like, no, I don't want to go to that concert. It's creepy, and it's like, I'm not going to, no one likes that stuff. But I love you, and I love that we can have fellowship in Christ. <laughs> maybe you should go to their concert, though, maybe. But that's what unity is. It should be that. So if you are here, and you've been here for a while, and you're going, I want more people like me. That's not what the gospel says. That's not what the gospel says. The gospel should cure that. The gospel of Jesus, the cross of Christ, should cure that. Everyone shouldn't be like you. Well, but what about disagreements? Now, here's something that we have to learn. I think we have to learn it in our society. So pay attention if you're not a Christian here. You're like, okay, what do you have to say about society? I think we should agree with this about society, but I think the Christians should lead in this area. To disagree does not mean you hate them. To disagree does not mean to hate. Now, you might not disagree with me. Does that mean you hate me? Well, I hope not. As Jesus embodied the gospel, we see this characteristic of his laid out. To disagree does not mean to hate. Jesus was able to be morally challenging and deeply compassionate toward the same people at the same time. We should be able to love even those we profoundly disagree with. Inside the church, absolutely. And this is also a very good word for public discourse as well. We have come to believe in our society that love equals agreement on everything. If you love me, you'll agree with me. Therefore, to disagree means to hate. That is not true. That is simply not true. We can't have a civil society with this understanding, let alone a unified church. To have a civil society, we have to adhere to what Voltaire, or what's commonly attributed to Voltaire, what he said. Though I disapprove of what you say, I will defend to death the right you have to say it. This is the old school version of tolerance that we need to recapture in our society. I pray that the, the church leads in this area. Church, I charge you to lead in this area. You can disagree with someone and you can radically love them at the same time. Your disagreement can come out hateful. Now don't do that. Your disagreement with society or someone in your church can come out hateful, but to disagree is not hateful. We need a dose of this in our public discourse on all sides. It seems like our nation, that our society is divided on certain hot button issues. Christians must lead the way in love, even though we might disagree. And here's how the gospel is applied to disagreements. Jesus disagreed with the whole world, but laid his life down for it. Jesus disagreed with the entire world, but he laid his life down for it. You and I can disagree in a loving way. We can disagree in a loving way in this church, and we can disagree in a loving way outside of this church in, our, in, the, in the public square. We can disagree in, at our workplace. You can sit with some people in your workplace and not agree on certain issues, but still love each other. We need to recapture this. We need to reclaim this. I believe the only resource that we have in the church to unify is under the gospel of Jesus. And I also believe the only way to disagree in a loving way with the culture we live in is to apply the gospel of Jesus to our hearts and our convictions. Now what do we unite under? What, do we, what are we, as Paul said, what are we supposed to think the same about? This is what we're to unite under. Jesus Christ our Lord. 
we are to unite under the only way for true life, for eternal life. Paul says that we were, that we were baptized, we were identified at our baptism with this name. Paul sees baptism as an initiation rite, a sign of God's work in and for a person's life to be associated with the death of Christ. This is why we're having a baptism next week. Baptism is to be taken extremely seriously. Baptism is this formal outward sign before God, your family, the wider community, and the whole church that you were, you were leaving your old identity and entering into a new life with God's people in Christ. That you're leaving this old life and you're showing, you're telling the world that I am following Jesus Christ. Baptism to the Christian was like, N.T. Wright said, baptism to the Christian was like crossing the Red Sea was for Israel. At the time of the Exodus, it meant coming out of slavery and into freedom. And that's what baptism is. And when you're baptized, you're baptized, identified under the gospel. The foundation for unity in the church must be the cross of Christ and baptism into that name, being identified with him in his death and his resurrection. We are to be united under that name. And our lives of humility should match the message. And this is what Paul is getting at. And this is where I'll close. The, 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 the lifestyle of the medium of the message should match the message. This has, this might, this has some actually some very interesting implications for the church in America today. Paul's saying... What the church ascribed, what, what the city of Corinth ascribed to were sophists and wisdom and intelligence and slick packages. But I didn't come doing that. I came humble. The anti-sophist. I preached a cross with my life and with my message. There should be something about our lives that exemplify Humility and unity in Jesus so that the medium matches the message. The message that we preach is Jesus Christ, him humbled, him laying his life down. The church should unify underneath that humble life. The church should be unified under, guys, are we together unified under the humble self-serving, self-sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, and are we modeling that with our lives? That's our call. And as a church this morning, I want to pray for unity in this church, but I want to pray for unity in the church in San Francisco. So it's just an act of agreement. Would you stand with me as we pray for the church, this church and the church? Church, let's pray in agreement together that we want unity under the gospel of Jesus Christ for Reality San Francisco and for the church in San Francisco. And that means that we might take, have to take a humble approach 
if there's disunity in your community group or disunity in your housing situation or disunity in your marriage or disunity, humble yourself. Repent. Take the low road or the high road. Whatever the humble road is, take that one. (laughs) Ask for forgiveness. Seek peace. Let's live our lives this way in this city. God, I pray as we stand together, I ask in Jesus' name that you would unify this church, that we would come under the gospel that saved us, that this church would live in line and in accordance with the gospel of Jesus Christ, self-sacrificial love, even at the cost of self. And so, God, I pray that that would permeate in this church, and we pray for the church at large. We pray for the other churches. And I know that there's just churches even blocks from us, Dolores Park Church and Cornerstone Church, just blocks from us today. City Church, their mission campus, just blocks from us right now. I pray that you bring unity in the church, in this city, God, for your glory. Not for any church's name, not for any pastor's name, not even for the name of the church in San Francisco, not even so that people in all over the, the nation can look here and say, well, look at that church, but for the name of Jesus and for Christ's sake. We pray in Jesus' name that you would bring unity. We ask that that would be under the gospel, getting close to you, abiding in you, being near you, making you the center, the center. The things that divide us, the things that, that we could debate about in love, may those things just fall away when we come together and worship Christ. May you unite us under Jesus. I pray in Christ's name, amen.